Today we'll be reading out of Genesis 1, 26-27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over everything that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. This morning we are in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, we are uh, there in this portion of scripture, there in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, really in the surrounding verses as well. We're also in the season leading up to Christmas uh, when we remember and celebrate the incarnation. God the Son, who has taken on flesh, and, and by doing so, he has stepped into the fleshy, human, created being which most clearly bears his own image. Think about that. This is, is this image, this creature into which the God who made all things has stepped. Let's pray together. Lord God, I pray that you would give us the right imagination, the sort of the thinking, the imaging that is, is in line, corrected, guided, by your own word. I pray that you would give us thoughts that are yours. I pray that you would give us wonder that is born of thinking of things that are, are divine and glorious. And the hope that comes from re recognizing and remembering the redemption that is in our Emmanuel, God with us, our Savior, Jesus Christ pray that you would work these things in the midst of your church this morning as we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning, we are continuing into our second week of our Advent series, this series called Echoes of a Voice. There's a few things I want to remind us of, that it is by God's own words that we have the revelation about God. We have a true and accurate and trustworthy revelation by which we can know who God actually is. But at the same time, in the longings that we have so often shared across humanity in the variety of our cultures and the variety of circumstances in which humanity has found ourselves, we have what N.T. Wright calls a sort of echo of that voice. Now, we can't trust our longings as authoritative any more than we can trust the echo of a voice. Far better that we would come face to face with the voice itself and hear clearly. But in humanity's shared longings, we discover a question that the voice of God himself alone can answer. So many of the questions that we have about God and about ourselves are born of longings and and, and, and for longings for justice, longing for peace, longing for relationships, so many things that we long for in this life that we then find authoritative, true, and trustworthy answers for in the very voice of our God. These echoes that are common among humanity that we're sort of spending the, these four weeks of Advent exploring are longings for justice, longing, hunger for relationships, quest for spirituality, delight in beauty. I would suggest that there's a theme 
that links all of these sermons together, and that theme that links them all together is reconciliation with God. When we come to know God, we come to know the image in which we were fashioned. As we know God, we discover something about ourselves. If we are made in his image, we ought to get to know who he is. And the way that we're reconciled with the place where we live is to be reconciled with the God who has placed us here. And the way that we're reconciled with the people with whom we live is by being reconciled with the God who has made us a people. Simply suggesting that to really understand our longings and find some sort of satisfaction, what we need, is not reconciliation, simply a satisfaction of our longings, but rather a satisfaction and reconciliation with our God. This is what has gone so wrong in the universe. And this brings us to our passage today. Our passage today, I want to begin actually by remembering a quote from a prayer by Augustine. He writes this, Lord Jesus, let me know myself and know you and desire nothing save only you. You can hear that, the, the longing to know who we are and who God is, but the recognition that to really have either of those two things, what we need is reconciliation to God. This is commonly called double knowledge, to know God and know yourself. God not only tells us who he is, but when we discover who he, he is, he tells us who we are. Now, in Genesis 1, it begins with, right, in the beginning, God. And God begins to work, and we see who God is. But then it's not too long before God begins to tell humans who we are. In our passage today, he tells us that we are made in his image. As we're reconciled to God, we discover the perfect image and satisfaction of all of our longings. And as we discover what it means that we're made in the image of God, we discover what it means to be human in the context of our deepest longings for justice and relationships and spirituality and beauty. Just reflect on it this way. When, when we discover that as humans we're created in the image of God, when we discover that, when we begin to, to trust that reality and live in light of it, we discover why it is so important that we do justice to one another. Because to harm or neglect or destroy another human is to disregard the God in whose image we are made. Or when we discover that as humans we're created in the image of God, we discover that we're created in the image of the perfect community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as our Creator has not made us alone, but has made us male and female, and increasing in number, multiplying and filling the earth in a series of interconnected relationships, we discover, by looking at God, the nature of perfect community, that we are made in that image. And when we discover that as humans we're created in the image of God, we discover that there's something about what it means to be human that goes beyond the flesh and material things. That there's a spiritual reality to humanity 
that's just out of sight, but it's within our imagination. We can think and know that we are something more than what you can see. And we discover that as we get to, go, get to know the God who is himself spirit. And when we discover that as humans we're created in the image of God, our eyes are opened to the beauty of the word that, that words often stumble to express. We're made in the image of God, of one who looks at all of creation. What does he say? When he looks over his new creation, he calls it good. And we're made in his image to look at creation and call it good and beautiful and to take pleasure in what God has made. As I mentioned last week, I believe that our passage this morning about the image of God is the key teaching of Scripture, which explains where this echo of a voice comes from, where our longing for things that seem to be beyond ourselves can truly be satisfied. I find that what is so wrong with our world is that we are running around busy and imagining and coming up with a variety of of methods and and self-help by which to achieve a satisfaction for longings that can only be satisfied by an image that is beyond us, by an understanding of who God is. Now, before we turn to our passage, uh, I want to give you a, a, a quick apology, all right? A little, little, I'm sorry, before we hop in. Uh, one of the commitments that I have in preaching is that I want to give something that's far greater than good advice for a good life. I want to give you a glimpse of God according to his own self-revelation, according to his word. Can we not agree? This would be great if we could see who God is and what he's done in redemption. But if we're going to talk about God, we're going to have to work hard. We're going to have to think carefully. That's why I said what I said at the beginning to the children who are gathered with us. we got some work to do, kids. we got a lot of words to think about together. And so I have committed to preach doctrinally. All, All that the word doctrine means is the word teaching. And so doctrinal preaching is preaching that aims to teach the congregation. I don't want you to misunderstanding. I have other commitments for preaching. In preaching, my, it's not my only aim to preach, to teach, but also an aim to call to faith. That is, I want to hold up the truth to teach the word in such a way that it looks not only true, but also trustworthy, dependable, beautiful. I want to present the truth of Christ and his gospel with doctrinal clarity so that you would put your faith in the truth and so be changed. It's in our vision statement that we we desire to see our community informed and transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that's not even enough. There's a third commitment that's also the aim of preaching to worship. Not only to teach, not only to, to, to call to faith and be changed, but also to worship. I can't talk about the doctrines of the faith without expressions of wonder and joy. And I don't think I'm alone. You see, as a preacher, I have a perspective on the congregation that not all of you get to have. 
I get to see your faces. And I get to see you light up when you hear things that are wonderful. I get to see you worship. John Piper has, I think, one of the best definitions of preaching that's out there. He calls preaching expository exaltation. Two big words, simple meanings. Expository exaltation. That is, the purpose of the preacher is to expose, to exposit, to expose the truth of the word while simultaneously exalting along with the congregation at the wonder and glory of the word that we find there. It's like a preacher. The preacher's job is to cry, Eureka! But in saying Eureka, the word Eureka doesn't just mean, uh, hey, uh, found it, right? It means, I found the wonder that we were looking for. To expose and to celebrate. That's the business not only of the preacher, it's the business of the congregation together. This is preaching. A doctrinal call to faith that produces worship in the preacher and in the congregation. So all that I just said, like what does this have to do with Genesis 1? We'll get there. It's an apology because what we're about to enter into, especially on this Sunday where we have the children with us, is a bit of doctrinal preaching. We all have some work to do this morning. I want to explain why I'm about to use a precise, carefully chosen word, even though it's going to take a bit of work, both on your part and mine, to hold on to this bit of teaching, this bit of doctrine with faith and worship. So let's lean in to do this together as we begin with the word ontology, all right? Ontology, and we ask this simple question. If you're freaked out by the word ontology, I'm okay with that. All right, we're simply asking the question, what is human? I mean, how many times, the kids get this. Sometimes the adults are the ones who stop asking questions. The kids are the ones who ask questions like, Mom, what am I? (laughs) What is human? What does that mean? Ontology is a word that simply means the study of being. When we say that something or someone is, What do we mean? What do we mean that a table is a table? What is a table? What do we mean when we say that a book is a book? What makes a thing a book or not a book? Or what do we mean that a human is a human? What makes a human a human? Try it. Give it a whirl. Try to define what a human is. Is. You're going to find it's a lot harder than you would think. And we're going to come up with a lot of answers together. Do it over the dinner table. Explore it for a bit. What is a human? All right, I'm going to try out just a couple of my efforts here. A human is a fleshy thing with numerous pairs of matching organs and appendages. Eyes, ears, arms, legs, fingers, toes. That doesn't seem to capture it, does it? A human is something that starts out really small, grows slowly for about 12 years or so, and then doubles in size all of a sudden. All right, yes, I'm the father of teenagers. That doesn't seem to do it. A human is a being with body and soul. That's getting somewhere. A human is a mammal, but not as hairy as most other mammals. Well, most of us. 
It's a hard one trying to define being, what something is. I even, I mean, trying to define a table. A table is like a surface that has legs. I'm like, like it has knees and like cartilage and stuff. What do you mean legs? It's difficult to define being. But let me give you an even harder one. God. When we say that God is God, what do we mean by that? What is God? The Apostles' Creed begins this way. Thank God that he's given us creeds. That he's given us people who have thought hard about these things according to the word. And, and give us this, these things as, as helps along the way. And the Apostles' Creed begins this way. I believe in God. But the confession can't say another word to tell us what, what the confession means by saying I believe in God without moving immediately to the Trinity. And so it continues. The Apostles' Creed begins this way. I believe in God the Father. And it continues, and the Son. And then later, and the Spirit. I believe in God, the Trinity. We cannot talk about God without talking about the Trinity. And so we come to the reason why I bring up the word ontology. And that reason is the word ontological trinity. I'm just not going to stop. We're just going to keep on doing these big words. But stick with me. Stick with me. It's worth it. Ontological trinity. This is a definition by Alan Cairns in his Dictionary of Theological Terms. That God exists from all eternity as triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be God? It means to be Father, Son, Holy Spirit. As revealed in the Word of God, that is, that this is not merely a human conception of him, but that it is an absolutely, eternally, and necessarily what God is, how God exists. One of the most important parts about this definition is that it tells us that the triune God is as revealed in the Word of God. Friends, the Trinity is not a philosophical puzzle that humans have worked out to make sense of the nature of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is who God has revealed himself to be. God has told us his ontological reality, what his being is. He's told us. It's for this reason that places like Matthew 28 say that we're told to make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We know that God is Trinity, not because we've thought hard about him, but because he's told us that is who he is. Not because we thought about him, but because we've listened to him. Let me make one more point about ontology before we look more closely at our passage this morning. This morning we're considering our hunger for relationship. Let me suggest to you that relationship is an ontological issue. It's relationship is an issue that goes right to the heart of our being. Relationship is a reality about both God and mankind that goes right to the heart, to the essence, 
to the being of what it means to be us, what it means to be human. God is triune. This is what he is. Relationship is not some optional behavior, you see. Relationship is not some additional appendage or attribute that God does or decides to engage in. Relationship is ontologically essential to who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What about humans? What are we? Our passage this morning tells us that we are created in the image of God. And when he made us in his image, he made us both singular and plural. All right? These are simpler terms. We understand what singular and plural is. One thing or many things. In our passage in Genesis chapter 1, then God said, let us make man in our image. It's a singular This new created being is one thing, humanity. There's one humanity, not multiple humanities. Friends, that speaks to reality in our present moment. There are not multiple humanities. There's one humanity, singular. But then, in verse 27, so God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created him, this humanity, singular thing. Male and female, he created them. This newly created thing, this humanity, is created as a them, as a plural thing. Specifically, as a male and female, created together as human thing. As male and female proceeded proceeded to obey God's command to be fruitful and to multiply, so there became many males and many females, but still one humanity. This is what it means to be human. To be human means to be a people. A people together. It means to be an interconnected, begetting and begotten network of multiplying humanity. This is what it means to be human. Now, I want to say a couple things that I didn't say. Listen carefully. I didn't say that to be a human means you need to have a kid. didn't say that. The scriptures are very clear about the dignity and value of singleness. But singleness, as it regards marriage, does not mitigate or eliminate the ontological reality that to be human means to be a part of a them. To be single does not make any human alone. Humanity is created ontologically plural. Whether married or single, you are a part of a them. And whether married or single, God has made us both male and female and has made us a part of a people, a humanity. It's not so much that we're created for for relationship. It's not that we're created for something that is outside of us. It's probably more accurate to say that we were created as related. Not to do something after we're created, But being created, we're created as a related people. A word on application. Think of an apple. Got it? Did you think of it? 
Everybody can do that. I see some of the kids smiling. Now think of a lawnmower. Are you thinking of it? Now the apple you thought of just a moment ago, it might have been red, green. I'm tempted to have you raise your hand and tell me. Was it red or green or yellow? There are, there are certain essential realities about an apple. It's sweetness, it's shape, it's thin peel, it's juicy center. That means no matter how you imagined the apple, you are confident that you imagined an apple and not some other thing. The same is true of the lawnmower. Some imagined an old red cover over a dull-bladed 2.5 horsepower motor growing, blowing blue-gray smoke out of its exhaust and your dad's pushing it down or maybe you got forced into pushing it down the side of the house. Others imagined a zero-turn radius monster with more get-up-and-go than my 1.8-liter Prius. No matter what you imagined, you're confident that your imagination was faithful to generate in your mind the image of a lawnmower in its variety of forms. Now do this. Imagine human. Imagine human. You can imagine male. You can imagine female. You can imagine 120 people sitting in a room. You can imagine a small family around a dinner table. You could maybe imagine a person reading a book alone in a chair. But no matter, no no proper imagination of humanity is possible without the reality that we exist as sons and daughters, perhaps as mothers and fathers, or friends and neighbors. There may be times and spaces in which you find yourself alone in a chair reading a book. But as long as you are a human, you should never imagine that you are alone. That this is who you were made to be. As long as you are human, you are related. My fellow human, I want you to know, when God made you in his own image, he created us. Not merely him and not merely her, them. Here's the beauty of this profound doctrine. I don't have to stop and explain to you why the world has gone so sideways with its imagination and multiplication of genders. It's so clearly stated here in the image of God that it simply needs to be received, needs to be believed, and needs to be enjoyed. Not much explanation is needed. I don't have to stop and explain why the world has gone so sideways with racism and other forms of injustice as if there were multiple human races. God has made us a people. It's so clear and obvious that what is needed is that we would believe and give Thanks for this incredible diversity of what it means to be a singular humanity. And I don't have to stop and explain why the world has gone so sideways with abortion and infanticide. The image of God has created a dignity to humanity in every one of its tiny forms that not one of us has to be viable 
or independent to demand the rights and privileges and protections due to the whole of humanity. Human. What is a human? This is why in a world that's largely rejected the reality that we are created in the image of God and specifically created in his image that we have so many mass confusions and even delusions, foolish imaginations about who we are and how we are and what we are. We've lost a connection with the most basic, simple realities of our ontology. But if we will restore the center, if we will understand the doctrine, trust God's word, and enjoy his design, we will be reconciled with what it means to be human again. If we'll be reconciled to God, because he's our creator and designer, we will be reconciled with ourselves. We will become human again, rightly so. What I want to do is I want to spend a few moments just spinning on, reflecting on the image of God. To be made in the image of God does not mean that we have some feature, some mark, some auxiliary imprint that is like God. To be made in the image of God is not that God made humanity, and perhaps you've heard the, the, the use of the words, the imprints on us, his nature. It's not the way it's described here. We're made in his image and likeness. This is what I mean. Some will try to say the image of God is that we have language. Others will say it's that we have reason. Others will say it's that we have relationships. Others will say that it's our capacity for worship. And I think all of those things reflect unique realities about what it means to be human. But each one of them are only one feature of humanity. But to be made in the image of something does not mean that we share one attribute of it. Do you see that? It's not that we share one attribute. It means that every moment of design and creation, the image is, is the standard of the design. I could not help but think over and over again during the course of this week about how many engineers we have in our midst. And engineers know what it is to imagine and think about and, and fashion and design. And every time you design something, you have a design philosophy that works its way throughout the whole of the design. Not just some attribute about the design, but it's true of the nature of the thing. To be made in the image of God means that we were made. When we were made, God had himself in mind. There's no aspect of our createdness that isn't touched by a thought about the divine. This is my point. Humanity is unique in all of creation. Humanity is uniquely fit to interact with our divine creator. What the image of God means is that the design philosophy that God had in making mankind was at every moment to fashion a new created being, a new ontology to be in his own image and likeness. Friends, that should sit us up and sh shut us up and sit us down. Think about it. Is there anything more humbling than for a creature to be sitting in a chair, standing on a platform here, and realize that we as a creature have been made in the image of our creator. 
And then to think that we, this newly created being, were so quick in the actions of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And then with each individual life ever since, so quick to raise our fist at our creator and say, on our own, we can live. Apart from your image, apart from your presence, apart from your faith, apart from your worship, on our own we can live. I can have my existence and my good apart from any need of you, we said. I can be my own God. Rather than being humbled under the reality of being made in his image and likeness, we rose up in rebellion against our maker. Every loss, Every evil, every breaking apart of the human soul has come from this tragic declaration. To lose the humility of createdness. We may be created in the image of God, but we're still created. Do you see that? To rise up in pride is to lose something that is essential about what it means to be human. To be human is to be made in the image of God. Made, created by a maker. To mess with, reimagine, distort God's own revelation of exactly what he was doing when he made humanity. To distort the reality of God's image in creation. Our maleness or our femaleness isn't a negotiable characteristic that can be added or subtracted or changed from our humanity. Any more than the ability to to speak is simply what makes us human. What makes us human is that he made us in his image. And so it is. Our social relatedness isn't a negotiable reality about us. So I want to press for a moment into relationship, our, our hunger for relationship. Look at verses 27 and 28 again. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, friends, this is a blessing. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then he gives them many good gifts out from among his creation. In these verses, I think that we have three layers of relationship. We have, first of all, relationship with God, then relationship with one another, and then relationship with creation. Briefly, what does it mean to have relationship with God? It means that God is our creator. We are our existence, our design, and our meaning to the Lord. God defines and reveals our ontology, what it means that we are human. The study of human beings depends on God's revelation about us. You can look at human beings all that you like, but it's not until God tells us, our maker tells us who we are, that we discover who we are. Only the Lord was there in those design meetings when he sat back and said, let us make man in our own image, after our likeness. He fashioned the design philosophy. He wrote out the spec sheet. He alone executed the creation process. And we received from him. And we're humbled by our maker. The second layer of 
what it means to be related is to be related with one another. We were created definitionally as a related creature. Again, we are, humanity is, ontologically plural. This is what we are. We are male and female. It's as male and female, as a society with the most basic diversity, that we are truly humanity. It's one of the evidence of the brokenness of homosexuality. It's the rejection of the otherness of humanity. Homosexuality isn't a celebration of diversity, as many in our culture would have us believe. It's actually a rejection of diversity. It's also a rejection of God's commission for multiplication. Part of our design as humanity is that our diversity would create a multiplicity. Our maleness and femaleness would cause God's image to cover the face of the earth. This was in God's design philosophy for humanity. Humanity is, though not necessarily every human, this is important, Humanity is, though not every single human, commissioned with the business of fruitful multiplication. We were created ontologically plural, and we are to multiply that plurality, filling creation with this unique image of God creature. Some, though not all, will link their lives together in marriage. Some among these marriages will bear children, also in the image of God. But all, all of humanity will honor and nurture the welfare and flourishing of marriages and children. As humanity together in our households, in our friendships, in our communities, we seek the fruitful multiplication that remains God's first command to humanity. This is what it means to be a related, interconnected, and multiplying people over the face of the earth. We are also related with creation. When we look around, what do we see? We see birds, right? Right there in the passage. We see fish. And we see other living things, the passage says. Living things. Now, living things means that there is a beauty and a dignity and a value worthy of protection and preservation in all of creation that surrounds humanity. There is one creature that's made in the image of God. But then there are also living things in all of their beauty. No other creation was designed and fashioned in the image of God, but they're still living. We relate to the world around us not as peers. We relate to the world around us like God in whose image we were made. We subdue. We have dominion. We rule and we cultivate Not as peers with creation, but as caretakers of this place where God has placed his image. It's one thing to to look at relationship. It's another thing to recognize this isn't where we live, is it? Things are far more broken than that beautiful image. What we have need of is not just relationship, but reconciled relationship. Let me suggest that the key to right relationship with the world and and with one another is found first in that first relationship, a reconciled relationship with God, our maker. 
you, can, you and I can easily see that things are not right in the world around us. Just open up your eyes and you see it. There's scars, there's tears, not only in our relationships with one another, but also in many of the marks that we leave in creation itself. But as much as the world has sought to repair broken relationships through education and governments and self-improvements and environmentalism, and there are occasionally some common acts of common grace, a brief approximation of reconciliation and renewal, if you look around us, there is no real evidence or hope of true and lasting repair anywhere. No real evidence of reconciled relationship. The world is broken, and it's not getting better. This is because the way to reconcile relationship with one another and with the world around us is found in reconciled relationship with God. The way that we're reconciled with the place where we live is to be reconciled with the God that has put us in this place. And to be reconciled with the people with whom we live is to be reconciled with the God that has made us what? A people together. How? How might we be reconciled with our God? And we come to the greatest point that we can consider. Not nearly enough time to spend on it. Jesus. Jesus, who is the perfect God and has become the perfect man. In the incarnation, in his humility, Jesus subjected himself to the fullness. Think on this for a second. It's a hard one. Jesus has subjected us to the full, subjected himself to the fullness of the ontological reality of humanness, only without sin. Whatever it means to be human, Jesus has taken on that nature. His feet touched dirt and grass and paved roads. His mouth ate the fruit of the earth, even as his hands tossed old bread baskets into the waste. His lungs breathed the mixture of pure atmosphere and wood-burning stoves and oil lamps. Jesus exercised the fullness of what it means to be human. Jesus, who is himself God, the second person of the Trinity, in taking on human flesh, was subjected to human relationships. It's what it means to be human, after all. Jesus has become a part of interconnected human image. Think on that. He chose to do it, it wasn't an accident. It's what God did. As humans, we need each other. We hunger for one another. We've mentioned this briefly, but on this side of the fall, these relationships are deeply broken and have become not only the cause of a great hunger, but also relationships are a sphere of great pain and and brokenness. And Jesus, in taking on flesh, took on the risk and loss of broken relationships. Why in the world would he do that? See, Jesus didn't have a perfect relationship with his mom. He was the perfect child. But Mary wasn't the perfect mom. He had a broken relationship with his brothers and sisters. We've seen evidence of that 
in the course of our study of Mark, though he was without sin. His relationship with his disciples was filled with great fits and starts. Even one from among them would cause the greatest betrayal. Another's denial would cause tremendous pain. And altogether, they would cause the most profound loneliness for God the Son in human flesh. Tell me that Jesus, God made flesh, does not know what the image of God hungering for relationship really means. Jesus suffered all things for us. Truly, he can sympathize Sure, he can suffer with us in our hunger for relationship. What risk? Imagine Jesus on the cusp of the incarnation. What risk did Jesus, the perfect, divine, eternally begotten Son of God, take in taking on humanity? But was it really a risk? Was it really a risk? Was it really the taking on of a deficiency? Or was it a divine plan? You see, for Jesus, in, in taking on flesh in the incarnation, there was no risk at all. The first human being born with no risk. Because the very purpose of his coming was to secure restored relationship with God and man. He isn't taking on risk. He's entering into rescue, you see. His coming was no risk because his coming was also the guarantee of the restoration of all things. I told you that the goal of preaching was not only to teach, but to call to faith and worship. This morning, I want to call you to trust God's word. Trust him. That when he says you're made in his image, this is what you are. Trust the gospel that Jesus has taken on flesh, though without sin. Trust that he has suffered in the flesh so that, we, so that he would bear the burden of our sin and our fallen condition and ultimately pay the penalty of our rebellion against the maker through his sacrifice on the cross. That wasn't risk. That was rescue. Though Jesus, through Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection, Jesus has secured the means by which we can be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And in being reconciled to God, we're reconciled to humanity. We're reconciled to ourselves. We can become human again. As humanity, God has made us in his image. But as redeemed humanity, he's remade us in the image of his beloved son. And as the community of the redeemed, we have been brought into a new people, a new plurality from every tribe, tongue, and nation. A new plurality. Worship anyone? Faith? Joy? And as a community of the redeemed, we've been brought into this people. By the work of Jesus, through faith in Jesus, our hunger for relationship has been satisfied through reconciliation with our God, humble, repentant, redeemed relationships with one another. Friends, I want us to hear this before we close. I want the last reflection on human relationships for us to know that there is a relationship 
to which you have been called. By faith, the call of faith, by grace, you have been called to respond with faith. There is a relationship in which you are truly loved. We can talk about hunger for relationships all we want. What we're really talking about is the hunger to be loved. And we have been gloriously, infinitely, sacrificially loved. Heavenly Father, I thank you that in you, in your word, we can receive the truth of what it means to be us. Seems so simple, but there are libraries filled with the question of what does it mean to be us, how to fix us. Thank you that you've told us. I pray that you would humble by your Spirit's work and the work of your word in the midst of the congregation, that you would humble every single heart to receive this word with faith that we have been made in your image. This is where we belong for your worship. And Lord, that as a people of faith, we would respond not only by being transformed, but also with worship and joy to partake in what you have made us and where you have placed us. I pray that you would do this work as the one who has loved our souls in Christ and loved us well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.